Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This time, we'll finish up our look at the Hohenstaufen dynasty with their apex under Frederick II, son of Henry, grandson of Frederick Barbarossa. He was also the grandson of Roger the Great, Roger II of Sicily, and inherited kingdoms, then lost, then regained them from both. He wound up ruling a vast territory, and at least in some of his lands, began shaping his kingdom in a way that would be a lead-in to post-feudal Europe, even if he didn't quite get there himself. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 9, Hohenstaufen Part 3, Frederick II. And this is the Almost Forgotten. Last episode, we worked our way up to the death of Otto, and it's not really a spoiler at this point to say that Frederick was able to succeed him. But rather than picking up from that point, I think it makes sense to go back and see how Frederick got himself into that position, because his father Henry died when he was young, and then his uncle Conrad died and was replaced by someone from the rival dynasty. His position in Germany was never guaranteed, not by inheritance or anything else, since the kingship was elected and the imperial crown was, well, whatever the heck that was. But even in his Sicilian throne, which in theory was just inherited, he had been in danger since the day he was born. So let's go back to that day. Frederick was born on December 26, 1194, in Jesse, a small town near the Adriatic coast of northern central Italy, not far from Ancona. His father, Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI, was not there, as he had been busy celebrating Christmas with a coronation in Palermo after taking the Kingdom of Sicily for his wife Constance, Frederick's mother. The Empress herself had just turned 40, which at the time was old enough to raise some suspicions about, well, everything with Frederick's birth. But because Constance had been in Milan with her husband several months earlier, where it was seen that she was pregnant, the wild accusations about his legitimacy are considered today to be just that, and there is little reason to doubt his lineage. Through his father, of course, Frederick was the grandson of the greatest German king and Holy Roman Emperor since Otto I, Frederick Barbarossa. But through Constance, Frederick was the grandson of Roger II of Sicily. Also known as Roger the Great, the nephew of Robert Giscard, he was a founding member of the Hauteville dynasty in southern Italy. This is all covered in Season 3, Episodes 4 and 5. So, Frederick had a bit of an inheritance. He was named Constantine at birth, although he was baptized as Frederick Roger. Frederick Roger Stauffer, maybe if you're going with, like, last names. He was elected as the King of the Romans, that is to say, King of Germany, at around two years old. In 1197, Henry VI died. Freddie was not necessarily in immediate danger, but he was certainly in a precarious position. Constance acted quickly, 
and asked the Pope for recognition of Frederick as King of Sicily. But wait, you ask, why would the Pope need to approve of the coronation of the King of Sicily? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Norman kings of Sicily insisted they needed no approval, as they earned it by right of conquest. That being said, Roger II had become the first king of Sicily when one of the two rival popes, the one he supported, crowned him as such in 1130 AD. It was like, well, everyone can't just go around calling themselves a king when there was no kingdom before them, so getting the pope to crown you was an easy way to get some real authority behind your crown. There weren't strings attached when Roger was crowned, but afterwards, popes started saying that the kingdom of Sicily was actually a fiefdom of the papacy, which sounds crazy because that would mean they could say the same about the Holy Roman Empire. And some popes did. But the whole point of this was Frederick was in a position of weakness and Constance needed all the support she could get. So she told the Pope, sure, you could say that Frederick rules thanks to your permission, whatever. Pope Innocent III was pleased enough and on May 17, 1198, Frederick Roger became King Frederick of Sicily, crowned in the Sicilian capital of Palermo. According to Van Cleve, quote, the absence of Philip of Swabia and his failure to conduct the boy to Germany before the emperor's death proved fateful for the future of young Frederick II. Henceforth, the heir of Henry VI was to be reared not as the scion of the Hohenstaufen, but as the boy of Apulia, successor to the Norman kings of Sicily, unquote. Things were soon up in the air for said boy once again. Before the end of 1198, Constance died as well. It may well have been a lucky thing then that she surrendered authority to the Pope on behalf of her son, because it made the Pope his ardent supporter. Backing from Rome was essential to him keeping his throne, and Innocent was named as his guardian. Now, Philip of Swabia, of course, wanted to retain his entire empire, and the most convenient way to do this in Sicily was through his nephew. But that meant through regents speaking for his nephew, in the form of German magnates. The Pope, wanting to be in charge there himself, cried foul, saying that Philip and his lead advisor in Sicily, Mark Ward of Onweiler, were trying to usurp the throne. And he may have had a point, because in 1199, Mark Ward showed up in Sicily. The Pope viewed this as a direct threat, and raised an army to fight the German invader. However, his army was initially ineffective, and Mark Ward quickly took most of the island. He besieged Palermo, although the papal army finally approached, and despite infighting and other issues, defeated Marquard. But Marquard still had allies on the island, while the papal forces, led by Walter of Palier, unpaid and roasting in the Sicilian summer, just left. Marquard soon retook much of what he had lost, and negotiated with Walter for free reign on the island, in exchange for Walter's free reign on the mainland and Walter getting the title of Chancellor. Marquardt entered Palermo, and the story goes that Frederick, at this point nearly seven years old, attacked Marquardt on sight, figuring he was in mortal peril. But in truth, neither his uncle Philip or Marquardt wanted to bring any harm to Frederick, at least not at that point. Frederick seems to have lived in comfort, still had a princely education, and was relatively safe. On the mainland, Chancellor Walter fought with the Pope, and eventually Marquardt and his German allies, for supremacy. 
southern Italy became a patchwork of squabbling duchies and counties once again. Then, in 1202, Marquardt died. A German captain, William, stepped into the void and claimed regency over Frederick, despite having neither the support of the Hohenstaufen dynasty or the Pope. But he had some local authority, so it was a good old-fashioned Sicilian dictatorship like the ancient Greeks. Back home, Philip kept acting like he was interested in keeping Frederick safe, even trying to arrange a marriage for him. It was almost like Philip, who had no sons, expected his nephew to eventually succeed him as king of Germany. Meanwhile, another leading German magnate in southern Italy, Diepold, a follower of Philip who had fought against the Pope, reconciled with Rome and convinced William, who was essentially the dictator of Sicily, to hand over Frederick to the papal legate. Frederick was brought over to the uneasy allies of Diepold, essentially now the leader of German Sicilian forces, and Walter of Pellier, that chancellor of Sicily. By the end of the year, the Pope said he was no longer the boy's guardian and regent. At 14 years old, Frederick was now old enough to rule the kingdom himself, and his authority was recognized. He had gained and lost the kingdom of Germany as a baby, and survived several regents in his Sicilian kingdom. But by the skin of his teeth, Frederick had survived against all odds to become the outright official, recognized by the Holy See, with no true rival contenders, King of Sicily. King of a fragmented chaotic in the midst of what you might call a civil war, but it was really just a bunch of barons fighting each other for land, Sicily. Dictator William was holed up in the palace in Palermo, and Frederick barely had any authority in Apulia and the rest of southern Italy, but he was king of Sicily nonetheless. He was allegedly skilled at horse riding and very good with the sword, although these are the kind of things people say about their king when they're trying to praise him. He was also apparently an enthusiastic reader, especially of history, which is probably a genuine bit of praise given the time. And at least as a child, he was a bit insufferable and rude, which I mean, there was some trauma around him, right? One of his contemporary critics admitted, according to Van Cleve, that while he was, quote, cunning, greedy, wanton, malicious, unquote, he was also, quote, witty, delightful, hardworking, he could read, write, and sing, and he could compose music and song. Also, he could speak many different languages. If he had been a good Catholic, he would have few equals among the emperors of the world, unquote. By 1209, he was engaged to be married to Constance, not his own deceased mother Constance, but rather the daughter of deceased King Alfonso II of Aragon, and he began the reconquest of his own kingdom. She was to bring military help from Spain, which was appreciated. Even the island of Sicily was not fully his, and that year he took most of the eastern portion, including the port city of Messina, before his fiancée arrived in Palermo. They were quickly married, this 14-year-old boy king and the new queen, who was about 16 years older than him. The 30-year-old Infanta had been married before to the king of Hungary, before he and their son died, and she seems to have gained some political insight during that tumultuous period. A true partnership developed. Frederick relied on her for counsel and for actively helping him govern. There seemed to be a genuine respect in the marriage, which was good because the alliance that was the motivation for arranging the marriage soon fell apart. Constance's brother Alfonso, the Count of Provence, accompanied her to Sicily, and accompanying the Count was 500 Spanish knights. 
Together they moved east, probably towards Messina to hop on ships and put the mainland part of Frederick's kingdom under his authority. But tragedy struck in the form of a plague which killed Alfonso and most of his knights. Those who survived returned home, and the Spanish were out of the picture, other than Constance. No additional troops to invade southern Italy were the least of Frederick's worries, though. His uncle Philip had died the year prior, and the wealth candidate Otto became Otto IV, King of Germany, in his place. At the end of 1209, Otto was crowned Holy Roman Emperor and gave more legitimacy and power to Diepold, once a close ally of Henry VI, now holding lands in southern Italy in opposition to Frederick's rule. Things were not looking great for the young king, but as detailed last episode, by the end of the following year, Otto had seriously overplayed his hand and had been excommunicated. Otto's attempt to take southern Italy and essentially surround Rome must have really frightened Pope Innocent. The Pope turned to his ally, King Philip Augustus of France, and Philip Augustus really didn't like the Welfs. He liked the Hohenstaufens, though, who had always tried to have peaceful relations with their western cousins. It soon became clear that Frederick was the answer to their Otto problem, and Philip Augustus helped prepare the German princes who were chafing under Otto's harsh rule, and there were many of them, to elect Frederick instead. Opposition turned to revolt, which sent Otto rushing back to Germany just as he was about to invade Sicily. The German princes sent ambassadors south to drum up support in Lombardy for Frederick and negotiate with the Pope. They were successful and made their way to Palermo in early 1212 to tell Frederick it was time to claim what was rightfully his. He wasn't quite sure what to do, and Constance was concerned about their newborn son. Oh yeah, their son Henry was born in 1211. She had been forced to flee Hungary after the death of her first husband, and tried to convince Frederick to stay put. And she wasn't the only one. The Sicilian lords too worried about the state of their fragmented kingdom. But Frederick was a Hohenstaufen like his father and grandfather. There was nothing for Frederick to do but follow Otto north. He later said he went because the German princes had asked him, and there was nobody else to do it. But that's because it's uncouth to mention vengeance. Before leaving, he named his son as co-king of Sicily, and Constance as the queen regent. He sailed from Messina in the spring, saw his progress delayed by enemy ships from Pisa, and made his way into Rome to see the Pope about a month or so later. After the formalities, he sailed to Genoa, because marching there was still too dangerous. His journey proved to be difficult. As he marched towards Cremona, his escort was attacked, and he had to flee. His journey through Germany was equally fraught with dangers and close calls, and he arrived at Constanz just hours before Otto, who was pushing south to meet the young usurper. The Archbishop of Constanz was unsure whether to let the king in, but the papal legate convinced him that it was the right move. Frederick entered the city and it, along with the bridge across the Rhine, was fortified, preventing Otto from having an easy march in. According to Van Cleve, quote, One contemporary chronicler, the biographer of Philip Augustus, reports of the king's entrance into Constance that it was said, if Frederick had delayed three hours, he could never have entered Germany, unquote. Three hours later, King Otto would have gotten to Constance first, fortified it, and Frederick might have had to turn around. Instead, the Swabian troops so closely linked to the Hohenstaufens deserted Otto, and others soon followed, so he marched north as his forces dwindled. 
Frederick did the same, and people flocked to his banner. Frederick, meanwhile, met with the king of France and agreed upon an alliance which included a large sum of money going to the young German king. He quickly distributed most of this among his princes, showing he understood this was perhaps the most important thing he could do to keep them on side. Otto was cheap with the leading magnates, and they were quick to desert him. Frederick would often be wanting for money because he was handing it out all the time, but he was able to keep his allies and secure Germany. With Otto retreating further north, the princes of the realm assembled in Frankfurt and elected Frederick as their new king, for the second time in his life. Four days later, on December 9, 1212, he was crowned in Mainz by the archbishop there. He was now 18, and once again king of Germany, along with being king of Sicily. He was, despite his dire situation just a few months earlier, positioned to be one of the very most powerful men in Europe, and he didn't let that opportunity slip away. He moved throughout Germany, holding court, making judgments on crimes, granting territories and rights to soon-to-be loyal followers, and generally making himself kingly throughout his realm. He marched up towards Saxony, the Welf power base, with a large body of troops. But, due to lack of food, he was unable to effectively besiege fortified cities still allied with Otto. The following year, in 1214, well, we know what happened to Otto. He tried to deny Frederick his sponsor by joining up with the English army and defeating the French. Instead, he had to flee the battlefield. Frederick was beginning to march his own army west to help out when Otto had been crushed. So the young German king just kept on marching and gained the allegiance of the previously reluctant lords of Lower Lorraine. Many of them had fought at Bovine alongside Otto, including the Duke of Brabant and the Count of Holland. By 1215, he had controlled Aachen securely enough to hold another coronation there, the traditional site to crown the king of the Germans. After he was crowned, he had Charlemagne interred in an ornate sarcophagus which was built for the occasion. Frederick himself helped seal the sarcophagus, where Charlemagne continues to lie to this day. In order to squeeze Otto, Frederick allied with the king of Denmark, encouraging him to fight the Saxons, even if it meant taking a little land in northern Germany. While he would have liked to have absolute authority in Germany, he knew that was unrealistic. He would keep the princes happy and be able to do great things elsewhere without worrying about the home front. He did try to expand his own base of power, with some amount of success, but nothing like what the kings of France were able to do in their consolidation of territories around Paris. Van Cleve again, quote, Conditions were such upon Frederick's arrival in Germany that he was primarily a territorial prince among numerous other territorial princes. Their opposition to him, as it manifested itself from time to time, was not because of his royal authority per se, but because of his advantageous position as a territorial prince, unquote. So while he tried to grow his holdings, he'd offset it with more privileges to other princes. And while the cities and their burghers were growing in power, Frederick had an opportunity. Siding with the princes over the nascent middle class, he was able to keep their allegiance. Since they were more powerful, it worked well in Germany. The same could not be said for Italy. Still, he saw the advantages of the economics of the cities, and the free imperial cities did see many additional privileges as well. It was just that, when push came to shove, the landed magnates would win out with him. 
Frederick stayed in Germany for many years, trying to secure it well enough that when he was crowned emperor, he could leave it, one of the constituent kingdoms of his massive empire, and draw upon its resources to further the spread of the Holy Roman Empire. In 1218, Otto, who was, technically, still the Holy Roman Emperor, I guess, died. Frederick began negotiating with the new pope, Honorius III, to get his imperial crown. The pope, though, was concerned that Frederick, who had brought his young son and co-king of Sicily into Germany and named him Duke of Swabia, was looking to unite his lands and surround Rome, which he totally was. So he got his son Henry elected as king of Germany and made the necessary promises to the pope that the empire held no authority over Sicily and that he held the southern Italian kingdom only through his mother and that it was a fiefdom granted by the pope himself and that he would never join the two together. It was only after years of negotiations and promises made that he was finally able to march into Rome to kneel before the pope. So on November 22, 1220, both Frederick and Constance entered old St. Peter's Basilica on the same basic site of where the new one stands today, and the two were given their imperial coronation. Frederick was now Frederick II, Holy Roman Emperor, about a month before his 26th birthday. But his next major action was not to tend to the affairs of his empire, which had been managed for the last eight years rather well, in Germany anyway. Instead, he turned toward his southern kingdom, There were many rebellious vassals in Sicily, and while there was chaos down there, he could deal with that kingdom very differently than he could with Germany. There just weren't magnates powerful enough to be a true threat to him, so he could methodically march through his kingdom and assert control, which is what he did, issuing what are called the Assizes of Capua, demanding that even his allied barons surrender their lands to him so he could redistribute accordingly. He played the magnates off of each other. The less powerful ones were quicker to obey his orders, and he could use them as allies against the reluctant ones. What he was doing, rather successfully, was turning Sicily into an absolutist monarchy. Law sprang from the king, not from the princes. He also wrested control of Sicilian trade from the northern Italian maritime cities, who at times were basically the leaders of Sicilian ports like Syracuse. He did this in part by reviving a royal navy, something that had languished since the time of his grandfather Roger the Great. In 1222, after securing the mainland, he besieged and captured a fortress led by a rebellious emir. But the Muslim population there, so closely linked to North Africa, kept causing problems for him. So, he took about 16,000 men from the region and moved them to Lucera in Apulia on the mainland allowed to continue to practice their customs and religion, and even granted some amount of autonomy, the men of Lucera became some of Frederick's most loyal subjects, providing him with a personal Muslim army, much to the dismay of the Pope and other Christian kings. Sicilian art, especially poetry, flourished under Frederick. Palermo was once again a center of culture, and in 1224, he founded the University of Naples, the first European university founded for a secular purpose. According to Van Cleve, the king stated in his letter, quote, Henceforth in the kingdom many will become clever and wise through the acquisition of knowledge and the cultivation of erudition. That the intellectually hungry might satisfy their longing for learning within the kingdom itself 
and not be compelled to wander foreign lands, unquote. The purpose, though, was not to train clergy, but rather to create an educated bureaucracy to run his kingdom. Although this was idealistic, it may have also stifled creativity within the university run by the king's men. Van Cleve, at least, speculates this is why it never reached the heights of places like Oxford, Bologna, and the Sorbonne. Because it was made to facilitate despotism, enlightened as it was, rather than to just understand things. Which, you know, a little dramatic, but maybe true. Frederick's wife and partner Constance died in 1222 of malaria. Eventually, he sought a new marriage with the daughter of King John of Jerusalem. King John had been wandering Europe, begging for a new crusade to help reconquer Jerusalem, as well as trying to find a match for his daughter Isabella, who was actually the heir to the kingdom through her mother. Frederick, meanwhile, had been pledging to go on crusade for like a decade, and the Pope was beginning to lose patience with him. So at the end of 1225, Frederick married Isabella. Soon he and John seemed to be at loggerheads. It's not clear why, and some speculate that this was Frederick's plan all along. Either way, Frederick soon was stating that John, who had married his way into the crown, was no longer sovereign in Jerusalem, and that it was now his kingdom by right of marriage. John went to the Pope to cry about it, and the Pope was quite frankly getting sick of Frederick and his ever-expanding empire, so he sided with John. But Frederick was already prepping for the crusade, so it went on. He went up to northern Italy with a contingent of Sicilian lords and began calling upon his vassals to show up there. There was resistance in Lombardy, and the Pope wasn't thrilled with it either, especially when Frederick ordered some folks from the Papal States to meet him in Cremona. But that was the heart of the issue with the Pope. The Papal States were part of the Empire, according to Frederick, and the Pope was just the spiritual leader of it all. Certainly the Emperor could call up troops from the Papal States. The Pope thought almost the opposite, that nothing could be done in the Papal States without his orders. Nothing should be done in the Empire without his consent. And Frederick's entry into northern Italy scared the communes there. They thought he was coming in with the wealth of Sicily to crush them and pull them into his authoritarian grasp, rather than the long-distance rule he had been practicing over them. They reformed the Lombard League, just to show him they weren't afraid of him, because they were afraid of him. They rallied forces and prevented Frederick's son Henry from entering Italy with more troops, but Frederick avoided open war with the League, which had full support from the Pope. They harassed his army, though, and he ended up essentially retreating back to Sicily. From Van Cleve, quote, Henceforth, a progressive change in his attitude is apparent, in which he comes more and more to regard the Pope, not as a bona fide spiritual leader, but as a temporal rival, demanding supervisory rights over all states and all temporal policies, unquote. Frederick and the Lombards, though, were reconciled once he left, through the intervention of the Pope, because he wanted a crusade already. But then that pope died, and a new one, Gregory IX, was elected. He was much more interested in sticking it to the Holy Roman Empire than the Muslims. So, in 1227, when Frederick set off with a relatively small contingent of forces towards Syria and was set upon by disease, this became an opportunity for the new anti-Hohenstaufen pope, now, the Landgrave of Thuringia was accompanying Frederick and died of this plague, so 
The emperor's decision to delay his departure until May, while he recovered, may have been based on genuine illness. No matter, it was too many delays and too many promises. So, the Pope excommunicated him in September. It was pretty clear, as Pope Gregory complained about the variety of misdeeds of the emperor, that the whole reason for the excommunication was just an excuse, that he was really mad about a million other things, which is fine, but it doesn't exactly sell. He even complained about Frederick choosing to depart from Brindisi, a foul city which bred sickness, despite the fact that a bunch of crusades had been launched from there. Knowing this whole thing was ridiculous, Frederick stuck to his plan. Much of his forces had already arrived, and infighting among the many different Muslim powers of the Holy Land meant they had a few early successes. As Frederick was recuperating in southern Italy, the Egyptian Sultan Al-Kamil sent one of his emirs, Fakir ad-Din, to negotiate with the emperor. He had rivals in Syria that he wanted eliminated, and he probably wanted to ensure another crusade wouldn't end up on Egyptian shores as it had a few years earlier. He offered Jerusalem itself if Frederick would come and help him fight against his Syrian enemies. In early 1228, Isabella had a son, Conrad, but she died soon after. While this may have weakened Frederick's claim to Jerusalem, he didn't let that stop him. He departed in June, delayed by the birth of his son and the death of his wife. He sailed for most of July, across the Adriatic, around southern Greece, then northern Crete, before reaching Rhodes on July 15th. He then made it to Cyprus, and since the father of the young king there had once paid homage to Henry VI, Frederick considered it part of the empire. After some time in Cyprus meeting with the lords of the crusader states, he put in at Acre in early September. Frederick did not have a huge army at his disposal. It wasn't a massive crusading army in the first place, and the emperor's delay caused many to return home. He was well-received at Acre, although some of the churchmen had to deny him certain blessings because he was an excommunicate. The Ayyubid Sultan of Egypt, meanwhile, had an opportunity as the death of his rival allowed him to march up and take much of Syria which had rebelled. He took Jerusalem, too, from the Syrian rebels, not from crusaders, and then focused on consolidating power and avoiding war with the crusaders. Al-Kamil and Frederick, who didn't have a large enough army to take on the Ayyubids, sent embassies back and forth. Fakir ad-Din acted as one of the primary go-betweens, engendering trust on both sides. In February of 1229, they signed a treaty. The recently retaken Jerusalem was returned to the Crusaders. Both Christians and Muslims would have free access to the holy sites for prayer, and other mostly coastal towns like Jaffa and Acre were given back to the Crusaders, and they agreed on a 10-year truce. On March 18th, the emperor, still excommunicated, marched victoriously into Jerusalem and crowned himself at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And with that, he was basically done. He left the Holy Land, crusade on his resume, and returned home to try and defend his kingdom, because the Pope had decided to attack it. Yeah, apparently Gregory IX was so anti-Frederick that after the excommunication, he basically said, well, now all his territories are forfeit. He tried to stoke rebellion in Germany, although that didn't work, and he had forces led by Frederick's father-in-law John invade Sicily. They took half the mainland before Frederick returned. 
But not only did he take command of his loyal and numerous Sicilian troops, many German knights who had gone on crusade decided to stop in Italy on the way home to help the emperor out of his little jam. Such was the popularity of the Pope's ban in Germany. It didn't take long. The Pope couldn't afford to keep paying mercenaries, and when the rumors he liberally spread that Frederick had died on crusade were clearly disproven, most of the Lombard contingent returned home. Capua, Apulia, and the rest of his kingdom was safely back with Frederick by the end of 1229. The papal army retreated so fast and ignominiously that John just went all the way back to Champagne, where he was from before going on crusade and marrying the Queen of Jerusalem. Frederick probably could have just kept on marching north, taking Spoleto and Ancona, those papal states that he felt were his, and uniting his two Italian kingdoms. But he wasn't going to attack the Pope. He wanted the ban lifted, especially now that he looked more like the victim than the aggressor. In July of 1230, a treaty was signed. He was unexcommunicated. He even visited Pope Gregory in September. With the Pope back on board, all he had to do was try, without angering the Pope again, to pull together a coherent empire that included Sicily, Germany, and, oh yeah, Jerusalem and Cyprus. Sicily was his home base now. It was where he was raised, and he was accepted as the hereditary monarch, and there were no magnates that could get together and vote him out. He was all-powerful there, and he was smart there. He followed the footsteps of his grandfather Roger in including all the previous bureaucracies in his administration, be they Norman, Byzantine, or Arabic. And unlike the rest of the Latin Christian world, he was happy to include advisors that were Arabic, or Byzantine, or Africans, or Jews, as long as they could serve him capably. In 1231, he displayed his wisdom, his intellect, and why some historians think he was ahead of his time, when he released the Liber Augustalis, also known as the Constitutions of Melfi, named for where he had issued them. It codified historical laws, incorporated his views on absolute monarchy, and reduced the power of cities and nobility. It suggested equality before the law for everyone, and eliminated things like trial by combat and by ordeal. It was advanced for the time and played a seminal role in formalizing European legal codes, and it was relied upon for centuries as a major influence. But time didn't stand still in Germany just because the emperor was gone. Frederick's son, Henry, faced limited power as a king, but he upset the princes, trying to increase his power by lessening theirs, rather than working hard to please them like Frederick did. He tried to grant the cities more authority, but the princes pushed back hard, and he was forced in 1231 to grant them privileges which severely limited royal authority in Germany for centuries, to the point where it is considered part of the historical basis for Germany's federal government today. Frederick and Henry were at odds over the king's authority. Frederick saw him as, according to Van Cleve, quote, merely a provincial governor responsible for the scrupulous implementation of his imperial policies, unquote, Henry, on the other hand, saw himself as, well, the independent king of Germany. Frederick decided to hold a diet in Ravenna, in part to deal with Italian infighting, which had flared up again. This indeed helped stop a lot of the infighting, because they decided to once again reform the Lombard League, sure that the emperor was coming to Ravenna to gather an army and crush them. He asked Henry to come, but Henry didn't. 
and so he reconvened a diet further north in Aquileia in early 1232. Henry showed up late, and Frederick had to be convinced not to get into it with him then and there. Aquileia concluded with Frederick confirming, as emperor, that he and the king no longer had certain rights that Frederick had fought to maintain for decades, things like building fortifications in certain territories. Henry had pushed the princes rather than placating them, and when they pushed back, he and Frederick were both stung. Germany was further decentralized and would remain so for centuries. Henry returned to Germany chastened, annoyed, perhaps humiliated, but he didn't stop trying to weaken the princes and got into it with the Wittelsbachs and invaded Bavaria. He attacked some Swabian barons as well and raised some castles. Soon people started complaining to Frederick. Henry was trying to upturn the power structure and upsetting very important people. And before we label him as some sort of champion, remember it was mostly done in order to gain power himself. Frederick told him to restore the castles, give back any hostages, undo what he had done. Henry responded with rebellion. But he had little support among the leading princes, who he was trying to take power from. I know, shocking. The Pope excommunicated the king, so Henry turned to the Lombard League, who allied with him. Rome was threatened by them, although Frederick's forces kept it safe. In 1235, Frederick made his way into Austria, essentially with no army, and everyone came to pay homage. Although at the time he was besieging the city of Worms, Henry realized the whole kingdom was now against him, other than, like, Milan, 400 miles south, so he gave up. He went to his father and begged for mercy. Very little was to be found. He was imprisoned in Heidelberg, a great restaurant on 86th and 2nd. No, sorry, a city in western Germany. And so, Henry was off the chessboard. That same year, Frederick married again, another Isabella, this one the sister of King Henry III of England. He spent the year in Germany, victorious and revered, but unable to convince the German princes to send much help with which he might defeat the reformed Lombard League. It was not, in their opinion, a German problem. With Henry properly punished, it was time to punish the Lombards for allying with Henry in the first place. First, though, he had to deal with the Duke of Austria, who was behaving most unvassal-like. After declining to show up to several imperial invitations, he was declared an outlaw. Frederick tried to just have some allied vassals deal with the situation, but they couldn't finish the job, so he actually divided up forces he was gathering and sent some to Austria before marching to Verona to link up with some other troops. They marched around a bit, the Lombards mostly fled, and then Frederick sacked the city of Vicenza. But Austria was calling, the Duke still held out on a castle in the Danube, although Vienna had been taken. So Frederick returned to Germany, and while back home, he got his young son Conrad to be elected king of Germany, to keep it in the family. He then returned to Lombardy, showing up in September of 1237. His relatively small army was reinforced with Italian allies, as well as some of those Sicilian Arabs that he moved to Lucera. This was suddenly a hefty-sized group, and many cities of the Lombard League just went ahead and surrendered. But Milan and others stuck it out and they fortified themselves in a strong position surrounded by Marsh. Frederick could not easily attack, and after waiting for a couple of weeks, he began to withdraw. Believing that he was heading to winter quarters in Cremona, the Lombard League began to pack up and head out. But it was a ruse, and Frederick's forces came racing back and engaged in battle. 
In the end, the Lombard League was slaughtered when they retreated, unable to hold out any longer. The emperor went to Cremona and held a literal Roman triumph, like fully copying the Caesars to commemorate his victory. Other cities submitted, and Milan appealed for peace. Frederick, flush with victory, wouldn't accept peace overtures, only unconditional surrender. However, he couldn't keep a permanent army in the field. The cities would rebel then or next year, and he would constantly have to pull together another army. For a man who is sometimes considered the first early modern ruler, he didn't realize his idea of conquest of northern Italy was already an anachronism. He tried to besiege Brescia, one of Milan's few remaining allies, in 1238, which assumed any surrender would mean their complete destruction, so they held out. And after two months, a successful sortie upon the German camp convinced Frederick to give up the siege. This re-energized Milan and its allies, and cities began to rejoin the Lombard League. The game of Italian whack-a-mole was just too much. The Pope, meanwhile, seeing the Emperor's intention of pure conquest, moved over to the side of the Lombard League. He even helped negotiate an anti-imperial alliance between Genoa and Venice. In return for their help, they'd get big chunks of Sicily after it was conquered, because that move was back on the table. Oh, and in early 1239, he excommunicated Frederick. That move was back too. This was seen as blatantly about the temporal, not the spiritual, especially by the German and Sicilian clergy. So despite his ban, allies did not just melt away from the emperor. The Pope started offering the imperial crown to any two-bit Teutonic duke he could find. Duke Otto of Brunswick, nephew of the Emperor Otto, declined, saying he didn't want to end up like his uncle. The Pope sought Francis' help, but even pious King Louis IX informed him that Frederick hadn't actually been convicted of anything, so he wasn't about to go to war. He mentioned that Frederick had been a faithful friend and hadn't actually done anything heretical. Frederick named his illegitimate son Enzo as vicar for all of northern Italy, given authority to essentially do whatever he wanted. Enzo helped retake some cities, and by early 1240, they were approaching Rome, although Milan was still impenetrable. He actually camped outside Rome, but the citizens wouldn't just let him in after the Pope appealed to their patriotism, so he withdrew. The Pope called for a council of cardinals to preside over Frederick's fate. Frederick did not want this to occur and warned he would stop the men from gathering. Many of the prominent prelates, however, boarded Genoese ships to head to Rome. Frederick sent his allied Sicilian and Pisan fleet to intercept them, and Enzo helped command what turned out to be an imperial victory at sea. In May of 1241, they captured over a hundred leading clergymen and held them prisoner. A council would be impossible. Around this time the Mongol hordes descended upon Hungary. The Hungarian king, who had supported the Pope against Frederick, begged for help. Frederick demurred, stuck in conflict in Italy. But he did have his vassals fortify garrisons in the Holy Roman Empire. The Mongols barely made it into the empire. Small raiding parties that were stopped in Poland went through Moravia to return to Hungary. Another small group was stopped in eastern Austria. But a major invasion didn't happen. Back in Italy, Frederick's English brother-in-law, the Earl of Cornwall, went to Rome on his return from crusade in an attempt to broker a peace, but left believing that Gregory was simply not interested. 
Frederick was again approaching Rome, and this time was probably fully prepared to attack. It was then, in August of 1241, that Pope Gregory died. The emperor took this opportunity to say his conflict was only with this one man, and not with the church or Christendom, and he backed away from attacking the city. He said he wanted only peace, as always, and withdrew from the fighting to show that his quarrel was with only Pope Gregory. A new pope, Innocent IV, was eventually elected. Louis IX, with his eyes on another crusade, helped push a peace negotiation along. They were able to agree upon many conditions, but the new pope demanded Frederick give up any lands he held in the Papal States. The emperor was willing to give up some territories, and asked the pope to join him in mainland Sicily to discuss. The pope responded by fleeing to Lyon. Louis IX actually tried to keep him out of France, because of the long-standing alliance between Hohenstaufen and Capet, but also because what king wants a pope around? But Innocent made his way there and entered Lyon in late 1244. From the safety of France, the pope demanded essentially a full surrender of Frederick to papal authority, which of course he knew would be rejected. In 1245, the Council of Lyon declared that Frederick was excommunicated again and was deposed of his empire. Not that this could actually be enforced by anyone. Maybe Louis IX could lead an army into Germany, but he was trying to have the two sides make peace because he wanted to go on another crusade. Despite the broad support he received in his empire, a small group of Italian nobles were implicated in a papal-sponsored conspiracy to assassinate Frederick. The Pope also induced some princes to rebel in Swabia, although the death of the Duke of Austria with no heir allowed Frederick to essentially seize that territory and hand it to a loyal governor, ensuring a strong hold on southern Germany. By 1247, the minor Swabian principalities were back in his hands as well. The Emperor planned to march from Italy up to Lyon to negotiate directly with the Pope. But papal forces fomented rebellion in Parma. It was more of the northern Italian whack-a-mole problem, and Frederick decided he needed to first get this important city back. He built a full siege city outside of Parma, which he presumptuously named Victoria. But at some point, the army at Parma, knowing somehow that Frederick and many of his lieutenants were away from the camp, made a furious sally and destroyed most of the siege works. They burned what they could and sent the imperial forces running to the hills. The emperor returned in force and swept the enemy troops from the field, but realized restarting the siege was not possible. He just didn't have the funds to keep an army there forever, and in 1248, he did little with the war, although more fighting resumed in 1249, when Frederick suffered a defeat on a more personal level. His son Enzo, who had been a trusted lieutenant, was captured and thrown into prison. Otherwise, the year had losses and wins as far as cities switching to become Guelph or Ghibelline, but no major changes in northern Italy. In southern Italy, allied papal forces tried to launch an invasion of Sicily, but were quickly turned back. And the Pope, visited by Frederick's brother-in-law, that Earl of Cornwall, apparently offered him the crown of Sicily, but the English noble turned it down. The next year, Frederick's forces performed quite well. Sicilian troops surged up into central Italy, securing much of those nominally papal states for the empire. And in Lombardy, Parma suffered a major defeat. Meanwhile, up in Germany, King Conrad, Frederick's 22-year-old son, defeated the pretender king, William of Holland, near the Rhine. Things were looking up for the empire, and the pope was not doing so great. 
He was also in a spot of trouble, as the blame for Louis IX's disastrous defeat on crusade fell to the Pope, as he was too busy trying to crusade against the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor to lend full support to the one against the Egyptians. But just as things were looking up, Frederick died, seemingly rather suddenly, at the end of 1250. It's not clear if he was ill throughout the year, but the death seems to have been a bit of a surprise. Once he knew he was dying, he gave various orders for succession and asked to be buried in the cathedral in Palermo, where he still remains. After Frederick's death, his son Conrad ruled as king of Germany and inherited the kingdom of Sicily as well. But Conrad died young, only 26 years old, in 1254. His son Conrad, also known as Conradin, was entrusted to the Pope, but his brother, Manfred, fought for and took over Sicily. The Pope was concerned about Manfred's power and offered the crown of Sicily, which he claimed as his fiefdom, to Charles of Anjou. Charles invaded Sicily and defeated Manfred at the Battle of Benevento, where Manfred was killed. In 1268, Conradin, then 15 years old, departed Germany and raised an army of supporters in northern Italy. He invaded Sicily, and fought in a battle against Charles, nearly defeating him, but instead getting captured and then executed. Enzo, still rotting away in prison, was the last remaining Hohenstaufen. But wait, eventually Charles became so unpopular on the island of Sicily, essentially because of overtaxing, ignoring any complaints from the island and moving his capital to Naples, that a revolt broke out. Many of Charles's men were killed. In swooped Peter, the king of Aragon and Valencia, who happened to be married to Constance, the daughter of Manfred. So he took over the island, and his house, the House of Barcelona, ruled Sicily for more than a century. So, still kind of Hohenstaufen's? Up in Germany, William of Holland, that pretender that Conrad had defeated, was elected king after Conrad died. He died two years later, so in 1257, Richard of Cornwall, that English brother-in-law of Frederick was elected king. And after his death, the kingship passed back to actual German princes. But there was nobody strong enough to get elected emperor. This period would be known as the Great Interregnum, and there would be a break of nearly 75 years between the death of Frederick and the crowning of the next Holy Roman Emperor. Like his father Henry and his grandfather Barbarossa, he saw the Holy Roman Empire as something beyond just a conglomeration of kingdoms. According to Van Cleve, quote, in his relations with the German princes, with the popes, with the Lombard communes, with central Italy, and with the kingdom of Sicily between 1212 and 1250, the consistent aim of Frederick II was the re-establishment of the empire, the reassertion of universal sovereignty. He considered himself neither a Sicilian nor a German sovereign, but the temporal head of Christendom as emperor, unquote. But growing up in Sicily also gave him a different perspective than his Hohenstaufen predecessors. He was similar to his other grandfather, Roger II, in many ways as well. He was tolerant. He maintained Norman policies of acceptance of different cultures on the multi-ethnic island. He was scholarly, not only a strong patron of the arts and sciences, inviting scholars from throughout the Mediterranean world to engage in intellectual pursuits in his kingdom, often engaging them to get their thoughts on sciences. Jewish and Arabic scholars, especially from Spain, came and helped Latin Christian philosophers translate old scientific treatises. Frederick also wrote a treatise himself on falconry, perhaps the first of its kind, 
focused on the scientific aspects of ornithology and hunting with birds. He states plainly in this book that the purpose of it is to present fact, not opinion, which Van Cleve believes sums up his views of science in general. He ruled a vast empire stretching from Sicily and Apulia up through Lombardy and Burgundy to Swabia and Bavaria and then east across the Mediterranean to Cyprus and Jerusalem, although his influence and actual direct power varied widely depending on the kingdom. His rule in Germany was influential but highly dependent on the support of the leading princes. His rule in the east was essentially in name only. He held no real power there. And in Sicily, he created a kingdom that some believe was the first to emerge out of medieval feudalism into the absolutist monarchy style of government which followed in most of Western Europe. He has been called the first early modern ruler, the lead into the Renaissance, but he was a man of his time in many ways too. Everything he did was an attempt to improve his position and consolidate his power. In the course of that, he became a strong patron of science and was willing to challenge the papacy's temporal authority. He was clearly an intelligent man, although maybe not a great general. Once more to Van Cleve, quote, He was a man of pronounced individuality in an age that insisted upon conformity. It was his unwillingness to accept this, his insistent opposition to it, that made possible his astonishing achievements, unquote. The achievements of not just Frederick II, but all the Hohenstaufen emperors, Frederick Barbarossa, Henry VI, Philip, and Frederick II, were to take the Holy Roman Empire to its greatest territorial expansion over a century of rule. They focused on the Roman part of the empire's name more than any other dynasty, and as such, spent much of their time dealing with Italy instead of Germany. Barbarossa's turn south made Italy the family's strongest power base by Frederick's time, incentivizing him to give concessions to German princes. The Hohenstaufen rule helped decentralize power in Germany, but it also helped modernize it economically. By the end of the dynasty, Germany was a less united, but much more populated and urban kingdom. Next episode, we'll move west a bit, and forward about four centuries to a general who helped make his kingdom the most powerful in Europe. Thanks for listening.